Howdy, y'all. You're listening to the Managing Up Show. I'm Travis Weisgood, and I'm joined by my hosts, Brandon Hayes and Nick Means. Hey there. Howdy. So today we're going to talk about a, a topic that everybody touches in their career as an engineer. Um, and it gets really tricky when you start to be responsible for teams. That's estimation. Um, we have some pretty strongly held opinions, um, not all the same in this group. Um, and uh, from the sounds of the conversation uh, that we had before we got started, I believe there are some opinions that have evolved over time. So who wants to kick us off today? I just wanted to point out that there is definitely going to be some heat in these takes today. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to uh, hearing Nick's take on some of these things. I don't know whether we should have you lead off, but I, I, I actually think it's okay. I would love to hear your, uh, your takes on this stuff and how you feel about estimation and like why estimate in the first place. What's the point of it? Wait, you're asking the no estimates guy to justify estimating? <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. No pressure. I, I think we've all been in teams that have done this both ways. Uh, any, any point on the spectrum, we've all probably experienced it at some point. I think the value that estimation can bring it uh, obviously, if you do it well and you do it really well and you spend time really honing it, it can be very predictive. It can help management make good decisions about how to invest in building software because it can give you some idea how long it's going to take to build any given thing. My immediate counter to that is that the time that it takes to get to that point is probably counterproductive because it takes so long to get a team calibrated to the point that the estimates are of that much value. I've never seen that not be the case. So I'm I'm going through this with some some restructuring on the teams that uh, I, I'm running right now, uh, and any little change to it, like one person changing teams, is enough to throw everything uh, out of balance for a little while. So to your point, I can kind of see where there's some where there are definitely going to be diminishing returns. I just don't know when that kicks in, especially on teams and in companies where where you're changing and adapting to the the market that you're confronted with and your plan may or may not match that it's going to be hard to say, Oh yeah, I like these teams I have today and the way they're structured today and the technology choices that we've made today are all going to be exactly the same in three months, six months or 18 months out. So yeah, I can totally plan on the next 18 months based on what my, my current velocity or whatever other metric it is that I'm using. So I want to set a, a baseline here that we are talking about essentially the traditional, very widely adopted style of managing product and projects in our industry, which is this sort of quasi-agile, most likely scrum. Somebody's doing a thing that they call sprints, or they have a cute rename for it. But the idea that people are either incrementing or iterating, but basically that they have work delivered uh, or uh, grouped into essentially two-week chunks, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller. But that's sort of the... In all the places I've been, it's generally in that way. The general consensus of the industry is that we estimate the amount of work that we can do in about a two-week chunk, try to deliver something in that, and that gives us a sense of the size of work that we could deliver in a longer period of time and a sense of tempo and cadence to things. And I just wanted to point out my understanding of the purpose of estimation is not just for like long-range planning, but for the ability to create a reasonable guess at what a team can deliver in a two-week chunk of work. It's way easier to mentally grab onto it to work in two-week blocks. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that it can be useful for in that context is appreciating the progress of a team over time and their ability to speed up how quickly they're able to deliver quality software. Mm-hmm. Because by measuring it in two weeks and going, okay, did we deliver more in this two weeks than the last two weeks? If we did, great. If not, why not? What might we need to be aware of there? That's that's some of the value I have seen there. Yeah, I think that value comes into play a lot as a new team is forming uh, or new people join a team. Um, how are we progressing? Has somebody get, gotten ramped up? Are, are we firing on all cylinders? But I think there is a, a, a real a potential downfall to that if you assume that you're always going to be getting faster. Yeah. Um, like to come... like estimation in general is almost always used with sprints and as a runner like i hate that term it's you can't sprint all the time uh if you're doing if you're running a marathon or you're doing an ultra um you're sprinting a little bit of the time maybe one day a week uh, if you're going a really long distance less than one day a week every other week for one day uh, because your body just can't handle that yet we set up these teams in a way where 
okay, we're going to sprint. And you, you normally in the teams I've worked with, you have your retrospective and sprint planning back to back. So the first half is the retro figuring out what we did great, what we need to get better at and checking in on the things you're experimenting with and then go straight into the next one and start. Okay. Off to the races again, just applying that through the lens of a runner. It's no wonder you see teams burn out. Yeah. I, I definitely agree that that the terminology could be improved and that may lead people to perceive these blocks of work, these two week chunks of work as a dash to a finish line rather than a way to set a tempo, which is how I think of it. I think of uh, the two week sprint as a way to set a cadence and a tempo and mentally just group some work together to say, okay, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what we could deliver in three months, but I have a pretty good idea of what we could accomplish in two weeks. And it doesn't take too many two week periods of consecutively delivering something of some meaningful value for that to have added up to a lot more than a team that was focused on some three month mission. And, and so it's a forcing function to bite off just enough that you could chew and allow you to sort of decide, okay, well, we delivered something. What did the customers think about this two-week chunk of work? Should we improve that? Or was that actually enough? Because the three-month vision we might have had for the, the you know, our customers won't be satisfied until they have this three-month chunk of work. And even if we did deliver it, we just spent two and a half months on something that two weeks would have sufficed. So there's, I think there's a lot of value to be gained in chunking work up in that way, even though it does take a little bit of extra time rather than letting an engineering team kind of process a goal and work in an unbounded time context. I would challenge that a little bit, though. I don't think you need estimates to be able to break work down into two-week chunks. I think that that can be done without sitting around and playing, uh, planning poker and putting story points on every card. And I'm curious because I, I think Nick and I are on the same wavelength here. What you just described, like if I take that to its logical conclusion, every sprint I have one ticket and it's the, we're doing this thing and this bucket of work and I'm breaking it down to a two week chunk. I know I'm playing with a slippery slope here, but is that where you're going with that? Or do you break it down further than, than two week and two weeks? And it's just, oh, this collection of related work is the thing we can do in two weeks. I literally am of two minds about this. I feel like there's a way to potentially satisfy both of these camps. And it's not necessarily rejecting the idea of estimates, but I'm not saying rejecting the idea of estimates is wrong. That it's totally possible that that is a preferable solution. And it could be that different styles are better for different teams. I don't know. So I want to hear Nick's argument for no estimates and how you deliver in a way that's sane and doesn't wind up snowballing. Well, I'm going to riff a little bit off of what Travis said, because I think he's up on, on, on the right path there in that actually deliverable work should be smaller than two-week chunks. If you're only delivering every two weeks, you're probably not accomplishing what it is that you set out to do. And even going two weeks and, and taking that long to put what you're building in front of somebody and getting feedback, there's potential to get way off course just in two weeks. And so I guess my my argument on the one hand would be you should be delivering more frequently than two weeks. And on the the other hand, one of the biggest anti-patterns that I think is embedded in Scrum is this idea of winning the sprint. And that we we set out at the beginning of the sprint and we put this big stake in the ground and we say we're going to deliver all this stuff over two weeks. Well, you start getting into some real perverse incentives toward the end of the sprint if that's your goal, if you have to ship that number of points or you haven't won the sprint. And so I, I would rather see a team celebrate iteratively over time the things that they ship on a regular basis. And we can still have a two-week sprint cadence, but we're delivering more frequently than every two weeks. I can tell you in that vein what I've had success with in the past. And I ran a consultancy for several years. And consultancies are even more usually beholden to putting software in a box, estimating it, label it, labeling it, packaging it, and shipping it as expected. Because the financial incentive is if it doesn't fit inside this box, you better file a change request and charge more money for it or push something else out. And we wound up taking a very different approach. And what I learned in that time was if you continue rapidly to spoon feed working software into the mouth of the stakeholder, they don't have time to open their mouth to ask you for for something more, more estimates or more dates. Hey, uh, here's some software. And they're like, I was going, nope, mm, here you go. And they're like, oh, that's good. And you're like, yeah, okay. And you just keep you know, reaching the spoon into the baby food and spoon feeding it to them. And they don't have time to sit there and cry about no estimates because the cadence of delivery is so high. And the net result is usually the software that gets delivered is relevant to the customer in some way. So I definitely have had success with not even 
considering estimating just on a weekly basis saying, hey, just a reminder, here's all the things that you got this week and working almost in a Kanban style purely and letting reprioritization happen on the fly based on what you learned from the software that you shipped intro week. I totally understand that strategy and I have had success with that in the past. How would you coordinate across multiple product teams or, or verticals within a product uh, when there are dependencies uh, in that world? Um, especially once you have, everybody is running on sort of the, we're just going to do the work that's in front of us. Um, and you have some sort of a component team in the middle of everything and make teams building on top of that. Um, how do you balance those, those dependencies? And let other people plan on things that are going to be shifting over time. I mean, maybe the correct answer there is that you don't have those dependencies. I mean, that's part of it. I think good boundaries help as well. So if you can negotiate an API contract up front or some kind of communication mechanism up front so that both teams can be building the bridge to a known place to meet over the river, which, yeah, is a hard thing. Um, a lot of it can be solved with communication, I think, and, and letting the teams coordinate themselves. Um, but I realize that's a little bit Pollyanna as well. And, and it is hard to do this at scale because it's asking a lot of teams to be able to operate at this level. And it's asking stakeholders to sign up to not be able to know what their system is going to be doing in a few months. And maybe the argument there is it's lunacy to think that anyway. That's my typical argument against estimates, that they, they actually give you a false promise to rely on. And the, the, the numbers that you get out of a formal estimation process are often so noisy as to be mostly meaningless. So in talking about estimation and trying to figure out like how accurate they are, I've always found that to be one of the challenges. Um, you always have, you think you're doing good and something will pop up. Oh, this is, this is out of left field. I didn't expect this. And all of a sudden my two pointer became a 13 or a 21 point ticket. I've, I've gone looking for ways to, to, to solve for that problem and haven't found a really good way. Um, I don't know that there is a really good way, but I know that other, uh, other parts of the technology world, uh, other industries in general, uh, and some of them that touch technology have interesting ways of, of managing this and calculating probability into their estimates. Uh, so if you look at a sales team, you generally have a sales pipeline. And the, if I have a deal out for a hundred thousand dollars, it's only worth a hundred thousand dollars once it's signed. Right. But that has a monetary value that you assign to that based on mm -hmm. probability, right? On probability. So that hundred thousand dollars, if it's in a stage that's only got a 5% conversion, it's only five grand to my, my total quota. So if it's got a 5% chance, I better have 20 of those deals. And now I've just set it up. So I have a hundred thousand dollars in my pipeline because one of those deals from a probability standpoint is going to hit. And I, I may, and maybe this is part of the problem with, with a sales pipeline like that you can take a certain number of deals and just not have them hit. And that's okay. Um, you spread out your risk across a bunch of different deals. We don't tend to have that luxury in software development where we can have the 20 different tasks in a sprint and only one of them can hit and we're good and we can throw away the other 19. All of them have to come in. I might disagree with that because my experience is that 90% of software is bullshit and shouldn't be shipped in the first place, but that's a different problem. <laughs> Oh, you, well, you did yeah. warn that the takes would be hot, Brandon. <laughs> I mean, that is one thing that I've started doing um, with the teams that I've uh, served as a scrum master on. Um, sit down with the, the team and the product owner and be like, okay, before we sit, hit start on this, if we only did one thing this sprint, is the top one the most important thing? Okay, how about the second one? And you go down through the whole thing so that by the time you get to the bottom, you're getting to the nice to haves. It's really great to have it. Your velocity says that you should meet this, but you're not going to tank the whole process if it doesn't get done. It's amazing the things that had found their floated down halfway towards the bottom or in the bottom half at all of a sudden like, yeah, actually we got to get that up there. So the two ends of this that I don't think any of us are advocating for, but are the straw man arguments that people pick on, on either side of this, either camp. Uh, one of them that people pick on the hashtag no estimates people for being hippie agile, like, come on, man, you'll get your stuff when you get it. This one feature will really tie the room together. <laughs> and then on the other end is the we're going to stuff as much shit as we can get into a sprint and then pressurize the team until they somehow make all of the, they use the backlog or the sprint commitment, quote unquote, as a checklist that they check off, even if it means sacrificing 
uh, things like testing or quality or confidence in the ability to ship those things in the process. Yeah, none of us are building video games. <laughs> <laughs> and even if we were, I, I would suggest that maybe uh, maybe that's not the best strategy either. No, but it seems to be the common one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm looking for a cadence, and I believe that estimates can be used to get a sense and create some error around a team for a period of time to manage external expectations to say, this takes, in my experience, about six sprints and six sprints of consistent application of relatively consistent effort with a relatively consistent group of people. And so those are the circumstances under which this process works. And any other circumstances, this, this process may be fundamentally broken and can't work. If you can give me 12 consistent weeks of the same group of people over the course of time that'll come out in the wash. And then you'll start seeing some stability in there because I'm working with a team now that can look at a segment of work and be like, yeah, we can do about that much. We don't have to kill ourselves to do it. We know we can do it with enough space and overhead to experiment with new things, research stuff that's coming down, ship to the quality that we like, provide room to mentor and leave enough gap to support other teams that come to us for support and help. For certain kinds of teams that have that kind of stability is like a way of injecting sanity into something that can feel like you're on the uh, the Lucille Ball. The chocolate wrapping line? Yeah, the chocolate wrapping line where you're just, nobody's dialing down the speed of this thing and you have to just keep working on piecemeal stuff as fast as you can. Where you don't understand where things are coming from, they just show up in your work queue and you work it. And listening to you talk about this, that proper Kanban is, is what I was thinking of where on some semi-regular basis, and in most people that are doing Kanban, it tends to be a weekly or twice a week cadence. Uh, you get together as a team and make sure, like just check in with everybody. Are we still in the right order? Is this still the correct order of things uh, that should be coming into the, the backlog or the immediate to-do list? You just know that things are going to flow through that and across the board at a particular time. And I think in order for that to work in the purest sense, you almost have to have every ticket represents roughly the same amount of work. Uh, which I think is really hard to do. But I, I feel like Kanban kind of fits in that space that you're talking about really well. I mean, Kanban's kind of my jam. That's how I like running teams best. To the point that, yeah, all cards should be roughly the same size, but calling back to what Brandon just said, it all kind of comes out in the wash too over a long enough period of time. I mean, you're, you're going to miss some too big. You're going to miss some too small. You're going to get some come through the board that should have been broken up and didn't get broken up. The, the primary metric that you look at in Kanban is cycle time. So how long it takes something to move across the board. And the thing I like about that is that it's observed reality. It's it's not putting estimates on cards and, and trying to get it right. It's just how many cards did we move across the board? Mm -hmm. But wouldn't that also work if you're looking at, at velocity as a, okay, this collection of cards moved across the board at this given time. And the idea with estimation is that you're going to have roughly it's going to come out in the wash that you're going to miss some high, you're going to miss some low, but roughly they're all going to be sized about appropriately to match the velocity. So if you're trending towards accuracy in your velocity, which I think is a more important number than just any raw number, like you can have a velocity of a thousand and that's great. But if you're missing it by 20% or hitting it by 20%, that's just as bad as having a velocity of 10 and missing it by two points. But those those should balance themselves out and you should see over time. And, and I've seen this play out uh, with teams where they don't have any idea of what they can do and they start this process. And I, I think like all of us do, uh, we overestimate what we can, ta can tackle and you do that a couple of times. And then once you've got some empirical knowledge, you're like, yeah, you know what? I thought we could move a hundred points, but it's, it's 80 points. Or I thought we could only do 20 points. We can, we can hit 80. Let's do that. I, I feel like they kind of come out in the wash. So I'm wondering, does estimation, short of the time it takes to, to do that, does it negatively impact uh, the team or the productivity of the team in any way? No, but I think you hit the nail on the head right there, short of the time that it takes to do that. I think you spend a lot of time in estimation conversations. Well, so then I guess the, the question, the follow-on to that is like, what value does estimation provide? Does it provide any value outside of somebody being able to say, okay, we've got... 1500 points in our backlog and we're able to deliver 150 points every sprint with the teams that we have. So then we've got it like that's how I think a lot of people, when they start thinking about estimation, they start thinking about capacity planning. So 
do you see a place where estimation has a role to play and is valuable outside of capacity planning? So one place that I do still use estimation is as a forcing function to have those conversations happen. So we, one, one of my teams, we put t-shirt sizes on everything. We don't do anything with that information. We're not calculating velocity from it. But the art of, or the act of taking a card and talking about it and putting a t-shirt size on it can be very revealing about when something needs to be broken up. And just making sure that we have a t-shirt size on every card means that we've talked about every card in enough depth to at least understand that much about it. Okay. So I, th I think that is value. That's value that I think the estimation process brings universally. And I still try to capture that value even outside of doing velocity measurement. Okay. My favorite thing about estimation is it answers the question, is this estimable? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, for us, anytime we see a card on the board that's an extra large, it needs to be broken up. It cannot go through and be worked as an extra large. Right. It's too risky. Yeah. It's not gonna it's not gonna fit within a a scope of work that is reasonable. That tells me there needs to be a design spike or something like that, or a research spike, something, a prototype, something to discover why this thing is so unknown as to be so big. Yep. Or or maybe even just more time for me and the product manager to sit down with the card and break it up before we ask the team to even take a look at it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier planning poker or pointing poker, however you want to call it. I, I hear called all sorts of things. And some of them I can say on the podcast, some of them I can't. I'm curious for your experience in using it. And I'll frame it with the way uh, that I've been uh, using it with one of my teams recently. Uh, we go through and when we're in a, a backlog grooming session or in planning, if there's something that came in last minute that we need to point, uh, we start up a session. Everybody can point. It's in our, our the tool we use for uh, our ticket tracking. And we read through the description, what's the acceptance criteria and point immediately, no discussion. Like, let's just see based on what's here, what's everybody's points. And one valid option is I don't know, don't know. And that's generally a signal that something is wrong as is I had somebody point this as a one and somebody point this as a five and there's huge gaps in, in the estimation. And then we're like, okay, well, let's have a conversation. Why do you think it's so high? Why do you think it's so low? And that's worked really well as the sanity check on, do we understand this? Does everybody on the team understand this? Um, do we have one person who thinks this is really easy and we realize that that's the one person that has all of the context and nobody else on the team can do it? It helps identify those things. And the benefit of going through that and using those points is we do get that velocity number. So when we go into the next sprint, we can say, okay, we know we can get these pretty, pretty accurate. We're coming to, to these points as a team and we know we can do so many of these. So it becomes a stand-in metric for the, how many cards can we push across the board uh, in a week um, or in a day? Uh, so it's just, it's using a very similar metric, but just assigning it to a different field in the card rather than uh, just the card. Yeah, I view estimation as a like a two-phase process. There are two kinds of backlog. One of them is for your product team to make a cost value calculation about what work is even of enough customer value to be worth the effort that it's likely to take. And t-shirt sizing is vital for that. And it's real fast. Like you should be able to go through you know, a backlog of expected work and t-shirt size that in an hour and a half, even with a medium to large backlog. I, in the past, have successfully used number of cards across. You know, there's some truth to that. My experience was we were getting like 15 cards across the board. And if we did a lot more than 15 or a lot less than 15, it was probably, you know, a weird sprint for some reason. And I loved that. And I was using physical cards and I really love and miss that. But again, this is one of those things that I couldn't really scale. Uh, I would say estimates are a lot less valuable than knowing where the hot spots are, like I created a blocked column saying, okay, for some reason or other, these cards are blocked and looking at a glut of cards in the block column is a vastly more important metric than the number of story points that a team can get across in a given sprint. I totally get that. But there is some value to weighting each of those. The teams that I manage don't spend more than an hour every two weeks in planning poker stuff. And as the team gets better at that, that velocity is starting to stabilize and it's giving us the ability to say, I don't know what 40 means, but 40 is what this team does in a sprint. And when they come back and we, we get done after an hour of estimating and they say, hey, we really need this stuff and the team has 40 things in it, well, you're going to have to chop some number of thingies out of it to get this thing back down to 40 because you can't ask the team to do 45 because the team does 40.
a, there's some protection in there that's meant to actually protect the team from external pressure, not necessarily to cater to stakeholders. And so I, again, I'm not married to the idea of estimation. There are a lot of options out there that have worked in the past for me, but I'm finding value in, in those aspects of it. So we've talked a lot about this from the perspective of, of the teams and like managers working directly with the teams. Uh, one of the one of the values that it provides back to the business, uh, one of the perceived values, I'll say that because I think we could we could have a pretty long discussion uh, as to how valuable it actually is. But one of the perceived values is is an understanding of throughput of the teams. Um, how are they working? How are teams performing? are they are they performing at at capacity? And when you're talking to individuals who don't have a, a technology background or have not worked on a team, it's harder for them to understand what cards across the board means and how much value each one of those cards provides. And if they're the least bit cynical about the team or teams, they might say, well, okay, but yeah, if points across or uh, cards across the board is a thing, of course I'm going to prioritize so that I have eight cards every day. Um, so it looks like I'm doing amazing work. So how, how do you deal with talking to people who haven't shipped code when talking about software teams, because inevitably that's going to come into the conversation at some point, uh, somebody involved in that process, and maybe it's not the CEO, maybe the CEO does have a coding background and maybe it's the CFO trying to understand why they're paying all of these salaries. But how do you have that conversation uh, if you don't have some number to point to, to say, this is the efficiency? Okay. I want to push back on that just a little bit before I throw it over to Nick, because I want Nick, okay. I want Nick to answer, <laughs> answer this, but I, I strongly disagree with the idea of anybody knowing what the velocity of a team is outside of that team. I was just about to say that. That's a private metric. That's a private API. Stay the f out of my velocity. <laughs> so that's, that's the problem, right? It, it, it doesn't matter what number you use. It's all a teaching process to stakeholders that are outside of the team. If you expose anything like that outside of the team, you get into really toxic patterns where you have an executive that doesn't know what the hell they're doing saying that team A is more efficient than team B because team A shipped 40 points and team B shipped 22. Yeah, that is not what that's for. Or even the number of cards across the board. Yeah. And my pushback on that is actually a pushback on the industry overall. Why, as an engineering manager, am I being asked to put estimates for effort on these cards for a team? Unless the product manager is going to put estimates of value on there so that the calculus is public. I want to see that calculation being made. I want to be a part of that decision-making process. And I think that's one of those things that can be communicated during the course of planning or whatever. The best team I've ever worked on would ask that question of the product manager regularly. How are we going to measure that this thing that we're delivering is providing value? What's, what's our measurement once this is shipped? And what's your guess about that value? You're yeah. asking me to guess effort. You guess value and tell me. Tell me the collective value. How many ploids? Remember those fake points on uh, Frito-Lay back in the 90s? How many ploids of business value is this worth? You estimate that and we'll estimate effort and then we'll meet in the middle. And we'll figure out, you know, we'll, we'll run the calculation and you get better at estimating customer value ploids and we'll give you story points. And I think the place that it comes back to is you just got to get experiments in front of your customers as quick as you can so that you can understand if the value you think is there is actually there. And the smaller you can get those shippable units, no matter how you measure it, the smaller you can get them, the more you reduce risk for the business. Mm -hmm. I pasted something in chat that we'll put in show notes. That's a tweet from a guy named John Cutler. And he talks a lot about stuff like this. And uh, he talks about a, a global organizational Kanban board that has a sub Kanban board. You really get one thing. He calls it an intervention in progress. Basically, you have one project that your team is trying to move the needle on, but it has all these subtasks in there that are like smaller experiments. Um, and he talks about how you can run multiple teams in a Kanban style, kind of more like what you're talking about, Nick. But just the reframing of these uh, these tasks or these features as experiments saying, how are we going to measure this? Because we don't know if this is actually going to work. We don't know if this is going to successfully increase customer engagement. Uh, we can hope and estimate. Can we get better at consistently delivering value? And our ability to deliver is only one piece of that. Uh, it is deliver things of value. That is the more important piece of this that I think gets neglected in a lot of these types of conversations. The essence always gets neglected in a holy war. <laughs> It's true. I could see in a thousand years, once the software wars have ended and the Agilistas have uh, declared victory over, I don't know what the oppositional faction would be. 
I mean, that's that's the thing, right? Like, I, you know, it, it's cliche to say, but like, what we're all really going for here is agility, not big A agile. We we don't care about implementing some magical methodology that's going to solve all of our problems. We care about delivering value to our customers. As a business, we care about delivering value to our customers. So how do we do that most efficiently? Which of these methodologies does deliver value most efficiently to customers? There's no universal empirical answer to that. It's going to be different for every team and every organization. I would also add it's going to be different for every pro- almost every project. Um, because one team is going to be able to work great if there's a clear line of sight to what you're building and you can break it down and you have a three-month backlog worth of things. Uh, but if your marching orders are vague or not 100% sure, you can't do that. If you're looking through the fog and saying, yes, we're going over there, we're not sure what's in the way, but we're going over there, you're not going to be able to be um, accurate in any estimation that you could do. Yeah. And watch your credibility erode with the the team that you're managing in that case. And, or the, the inverse, if that's not managed correctly in the rest of the company is watch the team's uh, respect for in the rest of the company erode. I went through some agile training recently and it confirmed a lot of stuff that I actually do believe about delivering software. I actually read the scrum guide expecting to hate it. And I was like, I don't hate this. Uh, the principles in there were not hateable. It turns out they are, they're sensible. They are an opinionated framework for uh, a way to structure this that delivers results in keeping with the ideas behind agile. Um, and it is one opinion and they know that it's one set of opinions. What they don't tell you is the set of circumstances that it's not likely to work in. They just want to, you know, they want to, you to watch the, the nice infomercial while somebody talks very rapidly in the background at a very low tone about possible side effects. This is not a good thing for teams that are rapidly changing or don't have a clear picture for the future right now. Prescribing a single way of doing this is, turns out, is not that useful. But a lot of us are prescribed this by their workplace. You get into, you're managing a team and your job isn't necessarily to choose the estimation framework. There is usually already a set of expectations. And so your question is, do you fight that because you don't believe it's right? Or do you find a way to adapt it in a way that's humane? Both? I feel like as a manager, one of your your key responsibilities there is to guide the team to be the best possible version of itself. Um, and that goes for individuals as well. Like you're trying to set up the individual to do the best work that they can possibly do and help them improve on that in the ways that they want to improve. And if the team is working against a particular style of estimation or not estimating or a, a particular process for sprints or a particular cadence for sprints, and it's just not working for them, I think it's your responsibility to the team to try to carve out that space for them to experiment and and be that best version of themselves. And that may mean fighting against the the institutional inertia that is we are capital S scrum and that's all we ever do. One of the things you mentioned reading uh, one of the, the scrum guides recently, I was flipping through uh, essential scrum uh, from the from Crone uh, signature series. And it was amazing because Scrum is always, from my perspective, having participated on Scrum teams um, and led a few, tends to be very heavy-handed. Here is the way that the world works. Um, This is how you will do things. Your choice is what point scale do you want to use? And that's about it. And when you read Essential Scrum, one of the things that they call out pretty early is that this is a framework and there's there's a starting point. And this should not look the same for anybody, um, which which harkens back to Kent Beck uh, in Extreme Programming in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, um, mm-hmm. in his book, uh, XP Explained. Um, and he very much said, here are all the various things that I've done. Every one of them has worked and not worked with teams. And it really just depends. And it's that experimentation. And I was, I was shocked to come across a Scrum book um, that said almost the same thing. Here, this is your starting point, and here's the things that you should constantly be experimenting on. I mean, you mentioned Scrum having a tendency to be heavy-handed, and I think that's my problem with all of these things. We, we take software engineers who are all very capable, very intelligent people that like to think, that enjoy solving problems, and we treat them like widget producers on an assembly line when we give them too heavy-handed a backlog and don't allow flexibility in the process by which they work. 
Um, I, I talked about this all the way back in the, the keynote edit about Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. One of the reasons Skunk Works was so effective is because they scaled the operation down and communicated a lot versus relying on a big formal methodology. And it got these people in, in an environment where they could think very creatively and solve problems. Now, does that scale? I don't know. Can you talk to some of those communications? Do they all happen ad hoc or do you have something that happens on a regular basis that you know is the communication mortar between these bricks? I mean, a lot of it was just putting them in a pressure cooker where they were basically on top of each other and were communicating all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the design building was right next to the hangar where they were actually fabricating the planes. And so when there was a problem on the production line, they would literally come and grab the engineer that designed the part and say, come fix this. Okay, so customer proximity yeah, is huge. exactly. Yeah. So in layers of insulation. So maybe that's one really good point is that a lot of times what you'll see estimation do is it's part of a system that is insulating engineers from customers that they're like, here, here is an abstract notion of some work to be done that came down this pipeline. Let's estimate that in the abstract. And there's no sense or contact with the customers. Yeah. You know, that's really counterproductive and you need a lot less process with more customer contact. Yep, I think that's true. I mean, I, it, it's all a challenge of how do we put engineers into a place where they can own their expertise and not just their expertise per, for producing code, their expertise for, for solving problems efficiently. How do we get them involved in the process of actually designing those solutions versus just taking some, here's what to build, go build it and tell me how many story points it's going to take to get it done. I, I think mm-hmm. that's that's obviously a straw man. I will acknowledge that that's a straw man, but, but I think But it it's happens. a common reality. Yeah. I would say that's possibly the majority of teams implementing quote unquote scrum. Ironically, scrum does not prescribe that scrum is like, Hey, please don't do this. This is an anti-pattern and everybody does it. Yeah. Well, it feels good. It feels, it feels very, when you're the person that's implementing scrum, when you're the one that's making the decision that the team is going to operate using scrum, that's the part that feels good. It gives you control over this process that you don't know how to control otherwise. Don't you love the illusion of control though? (laughs) (laughs) So We've talked a lot about teams and, and a lot of this conversation has centered around teams uh, that are operating effectively um, and have the capacity to operate, to put words in your mouth, operate relatively independently. Um, mm-hmm. Say, this is the direction to go in, go do that direction. How do you scale that to a team that may not have the same level of seniority and doesn't have that confidence? Or maybe it's a matter of confidence. They have the ability. They don't know that they have it yet. Or... Uh, maybe they don't have that ability yet. Estimation can give them something that they can kind of grade themselves against and say, oh, you know what? Like, <laughs> yeah, six months ago, I was really bad at these esti- this estimation thing. But now I feel like when I say this is going to happen in this amount of time or in this amount of effort, I, I feel pretty comfortable in that. So if you were to throw estimation out, there's, a, there's the potential that you're now biasing the teams more towards more senior individuals or people with more experience because they, they have a, you start to internalize these things as you go through your career. And all of us have been doing this for a long time. Like we have a pretty good idea. We can look at something and, and kind of think through in our heads, roughly the amount of work and know when we're looking at something that that amount of work is a punch list of items to do that you can knock out in an hour or two versus the, yeah, there's going to be some back and forth on this one. This is that I've, I've got a day of just wandering around trying to figure out what, what it is I'm doing before I can really sink my teeth into it. So how do you, how do you balance that at those two tensions? So I want to piggyback on that a little bit and say, one of the things I've learned about hiring junior level engineers for lack of a better term, engineers, just starting their careers I picked up this phrase from a coworker of mine from a former job, and I liked it enough that I've just sort of adopted it. In order to hire people at that experience level, you need two things. You need an established mentorship culture where there are people with experience mentoring. They're not, this isn't their first rodeo. Uh, somebody on the team has experience doing that and they have, or have a proclivity to it. Uh, they're, you know, they just kind of gravitate to mentoring. And then two, you need a backlog of one to three point stories. And that's a signal that says we have a process that spins out enough work that has smaller work that more experienced engineers might not even find fun because it's small text changes or small variable changes or small refactorings that aren't, that may or may not be that interesting to more experienced engineers, but that would be really great things for a, a person with less technical context coming in to ramp up on. And, and, and just the work itself naturally throws those off. 
you know, that, that the, that there's enough stability on the team. This isn't a team just trying to figure out how to get their arms around some big architectural challenge that the there's a process in place that spins that off. And so I don't know how I would, without the knowledge of one to three point stories, those existing in the universe, I don't know how I would know that my team was like uh, fertile ground for giving less experienced engineers appropriately scoped work to do. Is that a t-shirt sizing thing, Nick? Or is that, how do you know that? No, I don't think it's t-shirt sizing thing. I think if you, if you try to build software and you do it by putting a group of essentially all junior engineers together, it doesn't matter what mechanism you put in place. You're probably not going to get what you want out of the other end of that process anyway. Unless the software that you're mm -hmm. trying to build is just so simplistic that, that it can be attacked that way. You're going to have to have a blend of experience on the team. Just to clarify my point, I'm, I'm not talking about teams that are necessarily full, fully junior. I'm talking about being able to have that backlog of things that, that are the low-hanging fruit. And estimation helps provide that structure. In that case, yeah. Yeah, yeah. T-shirt sizing, I think, works great there. Just to, to understand that you do have some smaller stories that are a little easier to pick off and some maybe some mediums that would be good stretch assignments. So we're in the same we're in the same ballpark. You don't call the sizing that you do estimation. No, I called it estimation earlier. I, I said I right. said that was the part of estimation <laughs> that I liked and I, I tried to capture okay. that benefit. I yeah. I don't know. So I, I I again I go back to the fact that I don't like big A agile. I, I mm -hmm. like I like agility. And part of doing that, I think, is picking and choosing the best practices that work best for whatever situation a given team finds itself in. I can get down with that. You, this is the second time you've mentioned uh, agility in contrast to agile. Uh, Dave Thomas, within the last five years, I, I think it's been relatively recently, um, but he wrote a, a blog post, uh, Agile is Dead, Long Live Agility. That's probably where I picked um, it up. I also am, am fond of saying the Agile Industrial Complex. Mm -hmm. the <laughs> Martin Fowler. Mm -hmm. He loves using that one while he's getting up at Agile conferences talking about Agile yep. and saying, yep, I know exactly how ironic it is that I am pointing to this as a thing that needs to be tore down. Um, I don't know. Maybe he'll turn into our Samson and, and pull the temple down on himself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, a lot of the people, I've definitely read the Martin Fowler stuff around this. Ron Jeffries talks about this a lot. A lot of the people that are considered, you know, the, the figures that helped facilitate the creation of Agile as an idea and popularize it are kind of bristling at the four pay industrial complex that has built up around it that is selling uh, opinions as a balm for organizations rather than telling organizations to do the hard work themselves of learning what works for them and learning how to connect value to their customers more directly with engineering teams, which is the whole point. And largely selling the illusion of control, to go back to that wonderful turn of phrase. So we've talked a lot about estimation as a means of, of understanding or control. And Agile was a response to a very industrial world process being applied to software development the same way that you would design a physical thing that has to go through this this design process and then this building process and then when it's done it's done it lives on in the world and software is not that and the agile manifesto was written around trying to solve for that how much of the problems that we've talked about with estimation and i think by this point we can say there are problems there are benefits and it really is the the, the correct answer as to whether or not it's good or not is it depends but how many, how much of the problems that we see right now in estimation and its use outside of the engineering team come from that worldview that the Agile Manifesto was a, a revolt against? I mean, I think the interesting thing about it is, and in, uh, in, the, in the effective executive, Peter Drucker makes the point that we as humans have not been organizing ourselves into organizations to get work done for very long at all in, in the grand scope of humanity. So you take that and then you overlay how long we've been building software and then you overlay how long we've been building software at scale and you get to these smaller and smaller periods of time. And yeah, we're all just feeling our way around in the dark and trying to figure out what exactly it is we're doing and how to do it effectively. I mean, I think that's the challenge of building software and understanding how much it costs is that there's a significant chunk of research and development in every card that moves across the board. And it's very difficult to account from that, account for that. So yeah, the estimation is a byproduct 
of trying to answer that fundamental question. How do we get value to our customers in small enough increments that they can be treated more as experiments? Waterfall is a great approach for when you know the value of what it is that you're going to be building. And Agile is a fundamentally better approach when you don't know the value, when you need to reframe your work as a series of experiments. And one of the calculations in there is how long will it take us to deliver this chunk of value? And the one that we don't calculate enough is how valuable is it? So I believe that some sort of estimation is a requirement for that to be able to say, okay, well, this is going to take two people six months in my experience to do something like that. And it's all relative, right? You have to call back to something like it. And so you have to lean to people with some experience in this industry and, and differing opinions. Cause you go, well, I did a project that was a lot like this and it was only two months. Um, and you go, okay, so the, the margin of error here is that it's two to six months, but nobody's saying they could do it in 24 hours. And so this sense of like, like you said, t-shirt sizing at, at a minimum, but being able to roughly say in terms of orders of magnitude, the size and difficulty of, of trying to deliver some value, couple that with a calculation against its perceived value, phrase it as an experiment, get it out the door with the ability to measure the result of that experiment as soon as possible. And no, I don't think 50 years from now, Scrum is going to be the framework that we lean on to answer those questions because it has big gaps in it. But it doesn't fight against that. And, it, and it's a useful step on that path. Well, I think that's why estimates are is such a a, a, a flashpoint. Because that's the one thing that everybody involved with software development inside and outside a code editor think they understand whether or not they actually do on, on any side of the, the equation uh, is another question. Um, but it seems like something objective that you can measure. But that's the thing. It seems like it seems so much like you should be able to do it. But I think, again, that harkens back to what you were saying, Travis. I think that's that manufacturing perspective that tricks us into thinking that. Because if you really buy the idea that building software is, is thought work at scale, not manufacturing widgets, not building some artifact that we always understand how to build, then, yeah, it's, it's much more difficult to come up with that estimate. And, and it's difficult to teach people who think that it's simple that maybe it's not so simple without sounding like you're full of crap. So one thing I want to point people to is your talk, Nick, about the skunk works. And it may be worth having a follow-up episode where we just dig into that some more because it's such a useful metaphor because the skunk works was so much more like what we do in software than almost any other metaphor from classical engineering disciplines because they were trying to do things that had never been done before using means that they themselves had to invent to accomplish some pretty lofty goals under intense time pressure. I would like to take this in a direction of something actionable for the folks who are listening here, because we've talked a lot about theory and our, our opinions and experiences on this. But let's say your team is struggling with estimation, or maybe they're getting good at estimation, but that's what they're getting good at is estimating. And their work is suffering because they're spending so much time doing that. How do you go back to a company and try to shift that, especially if they are used to that, that hit of velocity numbers updating every other week? I have one that's actually in keeping with what Scrum is actually about, and it is narrow your focus from a checklist, a punch list. If you find your team in a place where they have a punch list of things that they're supposed to do, and it does feel a little bit like a conveyor belt that features are coming down on, I would push back on wherever the conveyor belt is coming from. It could be an executive or a product team or your manager, whoever that person is. In your next iteration of work, I would push back on that and say, what is the one thing that we could deliver that would be of the most value and how will we measure that? And if you get fired, your company is not going to be a great place to work anyway. This, <laughs> this is a valuable form of pushback. If you feel powerless to ask that question, you have some serious fundamental problems of disempowerment in your engineering organization that you probably have to work on first. But I think you ought to be able to ask that one question. What's the one thing that we could deliver in this sprint that would have the most business value and how will we measure that? How do we know? How soon can we know? I mean, I posted, I posted this Drew Carey meme in our group chat and uh, we'll put it in the show notes that says, welcome to Scrum where the points are made up and velocity doesn't matter. And, and I, I think that's really where we're trying to get. I think we're trying to get to the point where the thing that we care about and measure is are we delivering value to our organization and to our customers? And if we can get to that point, then that sidesteps all of these arguments. And that's the one conversation that I found success with 
is trying to change the focus of the executives I'm working with from velocity and seeing that velocity number and getting that hit every week to trying to understand how much value it is that we're delivering. But wouldn't you have to estimate that value? No, I don't think so. I mean, from, from an executive's perspective, it's salary versus profit. How much are we paying our engineering team? Yeah. How much is the product bringing in? Or you could be in a nonprofit and it could be engagement or usage. It could be a survey result of a net promoter score with our customers should uptick in this area. There's a lot of different ways to understand that value, but most organizations don't have the discipline to do that because most organizations think they already know what they want. This is why this is so dangerous to ask about because most organizations are actually full of crap and they don't actually know what they want. They think they know what they want and they're prescribing things that they want delivered in line with what they think they want. And so my challenge is as gently as you feel like is necessary. If you find yourself as a manager listening to this, wondering, okay, this all sounds great. What can I actually do? There's a little bit of pushback that you can probably do to start driving toward that and help people understand that for your team, you want to know the value that your team is delivering. We'll let the other teams check boxes. I promise you, you will be noticed for this. This will work unless your organization is so pathological that they don't actually want business value delivered, in which case, I don't know what to tell you. Ride that out until you can find something better. That wasn't a great note to end on. <laughs> Quit your job. Yeah. We're all hiring. I listened to a podcast called Soft Skills Engineering. And uh, their default advice is quit your job. And he has a song for it that's quit your job, quit your job. So no, I'm not suggesting you immediately go quit your job. But I am saying people don't take as much control over their own destiny, I think, as they could. And this is one of those small ways that a person could. And I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but I think a lot of people feel like Agile is happening to them, that estimation is happening to them. And these are actually things that are meant to accomplish a goal that if you look past the BS of it and look to what the company's really hoping to get from your team, it is some kind of business value. And if you can understand that and translate that to your team and facilitate that communication between the stakeholders and your customers and your team, then you're doing a very good job as a manager. And insofar as you are not doing that, maybe look at that as an opportunity to improve. I mean, it goes back to, to bring Martin Fowler up again. You can either change your organization or you can change your organization. <laughs> that's cute. I like it. Travis, I actually really appreciate that call to action about that. I think that's a really good question and it's a great place to end our conversation. For everybody listening, I want to thank you all for listening. My name is Brandon Hayes. I'm Tev Viking on Twitter. I'm Nicholas Means. I'm N Means on Twitter. And I am Travis Weisgood and I am T Weisgood on Twitter and GitHub and most every other place. And if you like the show, the best way to help is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And if you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, you can always get at us at Managing Up Show on Twitter. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Have a great week, and we will see you again soon. Bye, y'all. See ya.